Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to study, uh, in particular, Lord, the book of Judges. So many great characters and so many not so great characters. And we learn from the great characters and we learn from the bad examples too. And I just pray God that this will be an opportunity for us to, to not only learn more about you, to learn what you expect of us, but God, for us to grow closer to you in the process. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our savior. Amen. Okay. So we are in the book of judges. We're going to be, as you can see on the screen there, chapter one, and we're going to kind of end in the beginning of chapter two. Okay, so there's a lot of real estate tonight. There's going to be a lot of names tonight. I will do my very best with pronunciation, that kind of stuff. And I'm not sure you're not too worried about that. But just so you need to know, um, I don't want you to get bogged down with some of these names, some of these, especially some of the city names, because there's just so many cities. And there's so many names. It's just like, okay, what do I do with that? What do I do with that? We don't need to, don't, don't worry so much about that. But some of the names you're going to recognize, we're going to see some big names tonight in our text. And so we'll be there. So here we are. We are in Gen- or Genesis. We are in Judges chapter one. And it begins with an opening question. We'll kind of start here in verse one. After the death of Joshua. Okay, so that kind of lets you know where you're at in history. Right? It, mo- the, the big leader, the first five books of the Bible, the big dude is Moses. Okay, that's the one we're kind of building up towards. Moses. He's the one, you know, let my people go. The big Charlton Heston figure. He's the one, you know, one of the top three or four characters in the entire Bible, Moses, the Moses. Well, he messes up and he doesn't get, he doesn't get to go to the promised land. So God, eventually Moses is dead and God raises up Joshua. And you can read about him in the book of Joshua and how they're, how they're doing as they conquered the land, etc. Okay. But now we begin here after the death of Joshua. So now there's a leadership vacuum. What are you going to do? You no longer, so God had Moses be the guy, his brother Aaron to be the first priest. And then when Moses dies, God has a perfect Lieutenant waiting in the wings, Joshua. And now he's a great leader. Now he's dead. So what in the world is Israel going to do? Here we go. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? So we're opening with a question because we don't have the guy who has his ear to the voice of God. We don't have the one who's in the tent of meeting with God. We have to know what God's will is. So you got the 12 tribes of Israel. Which one of us is supposed to go fight first? See this opening question here. The book of Joshua described how much of the promised land that how Israel was going to occupy it. And Judges is going to explain why Israel could not completely occupy the land. And the reason why the book of Judges is so important is because of the Middle East right now. Who's there? You see, we're going to have repercussions of Judges chapter 1 in the in the year 2020. Who's there now? You see, we kind of get the picture 
that if Israel had had handled her business, there wouldn't be a Middle East conflict as it exists today. So the book of Joshua tells us how they're supposed to conquer the land. The book of Judges explains why they couldn't completely do it. So here we are at the beginning, Joshua's dead. And you know, the Israelites got to give them credit. They are seeking the guidance of Almighty God. Who's going to fight the first battle? Well, God answers. And now the story is going to unfold. And so I found a very unique way to present Judges chapter 1. Because... As you can see on your page, here are four stages. And each one of these stages represents a conquest battle by a tribe. You know, this tribe goes and does that, and this tribe goes to conquer their portion. And we see what happens and what doesn't happen. And we kind of see this decay that kind of starts with a compromise, and it keeps going down. And that's where we're at here. So. Is a great metaphor of moral decay being illustrated by the conquest. So the first, the first chunk of scripture is huge. Verses two to 20. So Israel is asking who, who's going to go do it? Well, verse two, this is uh, stage number one, trust issues. But before we get there, let's read that blue text, that, that light green text. This is Exodus 23, 31 to 33. A nice piece of scripture here. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, and from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give you into the hands, I will give into your hands, pardon me, I will give into your hands the people who live in the land, and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Wow. You were left to wonder if uh, the good King Solomon ever read this. All of his wives and the snare of their gods. Yeah. Here we go. Verses 2 to 20. The Lord answered, Judah. You know, Judah's got a special place in God's heart. I'm just saying. Judah will go first, shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the, the territory allotted to us and fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. They struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there they found Adoni Bezek that, and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off the thumbs and big toes. Then Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off. I've picked up scraps under my table. Now God's paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath-Sefer. And Caleb said, ah, yes, Caleb. Caleb's a bad dude. He's a tough old bird, that Caleb. And uh, Caleb is, yeah, I, I love me some Caleb. Caleb is the man. Caleb is a man's man. Right in chapter one here. Here we go. And Caleb said, 
maybe not the great, greatest parenting moment, but here it is. I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiryat Sefer. So Ophniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day when she came to Ophniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the people of Judah to live among the inhabitants of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hermah. Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with this territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots filled with iron. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from the three sons of Anak. That's a big chunk of scripture there. What in the world was that all about? Well, God said Judas first. So Judah has this thing with God. God says, you know what? Go. I'm going to handle my business. You're going to handle your business. And see, that's a doctrine called progressive sanctification. You'll see that in the Christian life. There's a lot of the Christian life that God handles, but he expects us to be faithful. There's so much about our salvation that we have absolutely nothing to do with it. In fact, all of our salvation. There's so much that we cannot add anything to this, that God is doing all the lifting. But God expects us to be faithful, and he gives us the ability to obey him. And Judah has this moment with Simeon, doesn't he? The Simeon is a small tribe. And you learn in the book of Joshua that kind of Simeon has their territory kind of by Judah, so it kind of makes sense. But um, think of... Think of Judah. They're like the biggest, baddest army in the Israelite nation. They don't need anybody's help. And here they are asking for this, these little guys to help them out. That's a weak move, Judah. What are you doing? What's that saying about Judah? Does Judah trust God? I mean, for real? When God says go, does Judah just go, oh, I don't know. Let me hedge my bets a bit. I'm not trying to overthink this. But an original reader would look at that and go, why would they hang on to Simeon? That's a dinky little tribe. They don't have anybody. Judah's the all-stars. And, you know, we as Christians are like, oh, yeah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's David's tribe. That's Jesus' tribe. It's like, that's the tribe. What are they pecking on a Simeon for? And then we remember Caleb here. Caleb had a promise. Remember, 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad, and 2 were good. We got Joshua and Caleb. And Caleb, as everyone's coming back, and they're complaining about the people and the size of the people. And Caleb just said, you know what? I don't care about the size of the people. In fact, the territory that I want, I'll go fight for it. I want the Hebron area. Well, the biggest, baddest people live there. I know. I want them. They're mine. Because the text here says, he drove out the sons of Anak. The ones everybody was afraid of, the Anakites. Caleb's like, I want them. And so here they are. And Judges chapter 1 is like, well, Caleb handled his business. So we make sure that he gets his promised land of the promised land. The cool thing about Caleb, he's not an Israelite. He's actually a Gentile. 
read up on Caleb. He's a godly tribal leader, but he's a foreigner. You see this in Joshua chapter 14. He's not even an Israelite. He's kind of someone who just kind of grafted in to the people, kind of like Ruth was. And God shows grace to even foreigners. And we have Simeon. Well, Simeon, uh, they actually handle their business, don't they? They're, they're a bit more faithful here than Judah. This is the last we're going to hear about Simeon. This is going to be something in the book of Judges you're going to see. If less is said about you, the more faithful you were. If more is said about you, the less faithful you were. The best judges, the most faithful judges in the book are going to get, you know, just going to get a few lines, maybe a paragraph. The worst ones are going to get chapters. They're going to get pages. Simeon handles his business. Simeon, they, they, they handled it. They, they, they conquered it. Um, so I wonder if there's some trust issues here. And do we really trust this God who's telling us to do this really hard thing? And, I mean, they've got chariots, God. We can handle them if we do the guerrilla warfare up in the trees, up in the hills, but in the plains? I mean, you read those stories in your history books about the Revolutionary War and the British soldiers, the Red Coast, they kind of lined up in a big line and they marched across a field. And, you know, they're like, okay, it's hard to beat them. But, but if, if, you, if you took it to like the trees, you could hide and you could, you know, do some kind of guerrilla warfare. But yeah, these guys had the tanks of their day. They had chariots with iron. Nobody was beating chariots with iron. Nobody did. They beat him when they're in the trees on easy ground, but in the hard ground? I just wonder if there's some trust issues here because things get worse after this. They didn't just completely obey God. And God shows up still. God shows grace still, even in the midst of disobedience and in the midst of kind of like maybe obedience and partial obedience, God shows up and God still handles his business. But that's the first section. Trust issues kind of begin here, but it gets worse. It gets worse. Verses 21 to 30. Here we go. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites lived there with the Benjamites. Now, the tribes of Joseph, now people sometimes ask, you know, the book of Genesis kind of leads up to Joseph being like the guy. Remember Joseph, the one who was the, 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 the crazy technicolor dream coat. He gets tossed into the well, and he ends up being second in command over all Egypt. That guy, Joseph, is really so, – so why doesn't he get a tribe? He did get a tribe. Actually, he got two. All the other sons got one. But Joseph gave it to his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. So they're, they're called the sons of Joseph. And so Joseph actually did get a tribe. He just got two. But it didn't become the tribe of Joseph. It became the tribe of his two sons. Where was he at here? Okay. Now the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to them, Show us how to get into the city. We will see that you are treated well. So remember the verse I read to you at the top? Make no treaties with them. Right away, they're making a treaty. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Luz, which is named to this day. 
But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beshan or Ta'anak or Dor or Iblaim or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. I want you to remember that. The Canaanites were determined to live in that land. I want you to remember that very phrase. If you are stuck praying a prayer for decades. Well, God, why am I not seeing answer to this prayer? Why am I not seeing this blessing that I know you promised? God, why am I not seeing this move forward? Why am I still struggling with this, God? You know, sometimes the things in our life, the Canaanites are determined to live in that land, aren't they? Now, their sovereignty doesn't outweigh God's, of course. Here they are. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. But the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalah. So these Canaanites lived among them. But Zebulun did subject them to forced labor. So we kind of go for some trust issues. The stage number two, conquest leads to coexistence we're not going to drive them out or we can't drive them out. So let's just get along. You have your room in the house. I have my room in the house. You know what? We can't stop arguing. So you go over there, you hold your phone for a while. I'll do my sewing for a while. I'll read my book. I'll have the TV. Each one of them has a TV, whatever it is, coexistence. That's one of the buzzwords. You see those on bumper stickers. That bumper sticker, by the way, is fantastically ignorant. How many of those letters kill the other letters? It's not the Christian letters, the T, I believe. Yeah, make text it in, compromise. Compromise indeed. So, coexistence. Benjamin, well, he's making a treaty here. What do we have to say about Benjamin? Benjamin not only did not drive out the Jebusites, but allowed them to live within their lands. And in the capture of Bethel, the success of the tribes of Joseph is uh, marked by a failure to be faithful. And the Israelites showed covenant loyalty to this random guy and his family, but didn't show covenant loyalty to, uh, to God, obedience to God. You know, God's only, he's expecting obedience here. He's expecting them to do it. And remember, when God's at the forefront of the army, they don't lose. They don't lose. And God, God wins the battle. I mean, that's Psalm 46 in a nutshell, to be still. You don't have to be active. God will be active. You just be still. And to know that he's God and he's got this. Manasseh, Ephraim, and Zebulun, they didn't really fully obey God by driving out the enemy. They allowed the enemy to stay there and made a slave workforce out of them. And uh, their religious practices and influence are still there. Um, yeah, so trust issues kind of lead to, yeah, a coexistence. And this is kind of where we're going. It's going to get worse. Um, the next one, stage three. House guests, okay, 31 to 33. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Ahlab or Akzib or Helba or Afek or Rehob. 
the Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. But the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. And those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. So we go from some trust issues to coexistence to house guests. You know, I read, I read a quote today, and I, I forget if it's John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul, one of those guys. I think it's MacArthur. And he said, you know, what troubles me is not pagans when they, when they start to, 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 to deny things and when they're not obedient to God. What troubles me is when Christians begin to compromise. And they begin to just compromise. And that, that's one of the, the, the key truths about our existence. That's one of the lies that our culture likes to teach us. They say this, the compassionate Christian must compromise convictions. Oh, I get it. You're a Christian. I know you have your convictions, but you need to be more compassionate. And in that compassion, you need to compromise. Now, those of us who are in relationships, we understand compromise. Compromise is meant to be two. You know, each of them giving some, but not with Christians. We're just expected to compromise. And uh, yeah, paraphrase of Matthew 10, 28, don't fear man, fear God. Yeah, so house guests, it's like, it's, it's not so much, okay, you keep your spot, you keep my spot, but you know what? We're going to live together. We're just going to live as, as in an existence together. And from a theological standpoint, that's like a nonstop mocking of God. Maybe that's taking it a bit too far, but God said, do this, and they didn't. And here they are, these, these reminders of their faithlessness. And we might have things in our life that we, do, that we allow, that we've compromised on, and we've allowed these things to creep in, and we allow them to stay in our house. And we're going to get there with this moral decay. We're going to talk about that. But yes, I want you to just kind of just treat this metaphorically here because we're not conquering a promised land, but we're still called to be faithful. And there's trust issues and coexistence and now house guests. And, and boy, the last one is just terrible. Dan, Dan wins the booby prize. You know, they're the worst. Okay, 34 to 36. Let's hear about this. Oh, Dan, the Amorites... And sorry, Daniel, this is your namesake here. One of your namesakes. But actually, it's not true. This is Dan, not Danielle. That's a, you're off the hook, buddy. Your namesake is a wonderful man of faith. Uh, but this is, uh, this is the tribe of Dan. Okay, the Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. Wow. And the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Heres, Aijalon and Sha'albim. But when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Silla and beyond. That last little bit there is kind of irony. I read to you at the top, Exodus 23, where God describes the boundaries. Here the enemies are going to get boundaries. This is the promised land. This is God's like a wedding gift to his people as their husband. I'm leading you to this land of milk and honey. We as Christians, we follow our Joshua, our Yeshua, 
And one day he's going to lead us to our promised land. Whose architect and builder is God. Well, prisoners. The Danites represent utter and complete failure. Not only did they fail to drive out the enemy, but they themselves were driven out. The choicest part of their land was taken from them. You're not going to have this. No, they were imprisoned. And um, in concluding this look at the conquest of Canaan, the author gives a description of the border of only the Amorites. The question is begged, just whose land is this promised land? Whose is it? Mictex in, sin-like cancer is parasitic. It must be eradicated completely or else um, grow a first chance. Heathen or pagan surrounding nations represented just that. God is making it clear that this isn't an arena we can compromise in. Yeah. The number one way our culture wants us to compromise is with, with, with their idol, which is called tolerance. And number one, tolerate, the people who are calling for tolerance are usually the least, the least tolerant of them all. And we're seeing this in our culture today. You most likely are judged if you hold a position that is not the accepted position. And just, just pick, a, pick a topic, race relations. Pick a topic, Marxism, communism, the election, what side are you on? You, whatever it is, if you hold a position, you're not even doing anything. You're just holding a position. It used to be you could hold a position. It's like, oh, that's just your, your position. I think you're wrong, but oh well. Now it's like warfare against positions. You're not allowed to think a certain way. You're not allowed to, so that compromise is like you must be tolerant. Not it's a, it's a virtue to be tolerant, but it is enforced. You must be tolerant or else you're going to face consequences. And the compassionate Christian must compromise. That's what we're told. And it's a slippery slope. Because once you start to compromise, you begin to accept things that you previously didn't accept. But then nobody wants acceptance. Acceptance is kind of leads to approval. So we got here some trust issues to coexistence all of a sudden they're house guests and all of a sudden a prisoner gee well obviously god's not happy there's no way god can be happy and for any of you who are who are inside your head going oh you're a little bit harsh on israel here i'm just saying the people they were supposed to drive out are still there variation or descendants of you know etc they're still there and israel's like this big and everyone else is like this. I'm not meaning this to be a geopolitical thing. I'm just letting you know. This, is, this has implications today. They were unable to drive people out. Well, God indicts Israel, chapter 2, 1 to 5. And he does it through a representative. And this representative is called the angel of the Lord. And this is a unique character in the Old Testament, by the way, because he's not God in the sense that he is a separate character, but he also is God. And so if you have Jewish friends, I invite you to bring up this angel of the Lord character. 
the next time, well, God is only one. God can only be one. You know, Shema Yisrael. God can only be one. Yes. But what about the angel of the Lord? See, already you've got this idea of the angel of the Lord. And as you check out his character in scripture, he is, uh, I believe we're going to see him again later on in the Samson story. He's going to show up and he's going to receive worship. And he's not going to say, whoo, stop the worship now. Hold on here. No, he's going to take it as if he is actually God, but he's not God. He's God, but he's... So already we have this idea of Jesus in the flesh, who is the Word made flesh. He himself is not the Father, but still can say, I and the Father are one. But it's two. I thought you said God was one. I did. So we, that tension should be there with this angel of the Lord. You should be saying to yourself, well, who? Who is this guy? Check him out. Get onto your Google and Google that later, Angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, and look at the references. See what's going on there. Find out where he's at. Read about him. It's an interesting character. Well, the angel of the Lord, God used this angel to speak. He went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I have brought you out of Egypt. I love that. He's speaking I. He didn't say, oh, yeah, by the way, he's not like uh, Gabriel or Michael or something like that. Hey, here's what God said, I got to tell you. This is the angel saying, I, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Ooh, those altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. So right there, right there. If you think that I have overthought chapter one, if you think for one second, like, oh, you're too hard on them. Oh, there's no way. The trust issues, you went too far there. It doesn't matter what you think at this point. And honestly, it doesn't matter what I think at this point because of chapter two. God responds to all this by saying, you disobeyed me. God is not happy at all. In fact, I put on your page here, God, and that word is indict. That's like a court thing. You are in a grand jury, looks at the evidence, and then levels an indictment. Yes, this needs to go to trial. Or you know what? This doesn't need to go to trial. If you were indicted, you will now then go to trial. It's like, this is the issue. God indicts Israel. You've disobeyed me, God says. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. Yeah, we read that above, didn't we? Exodus 23. When the angel of the Lord has spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud and they called that place Bochim. There they offer sacrifices to the Lord. God's indictment of Israel. Um, God likes to do this, by the way. You see this all throughout the Old Testament law, especially the five books of Moses. God says, I am the Lord. I brought you out of Egypt. And we remember that. Each one of those 10 plagues was like God slapping one of the Egyptian gods. Every single one of them. So this is God saying, I'm God and you're not. Let my people go. You're not even a God anymore. Compared to me, you're nothing. And I'm God. And I'm going to take my people and miraculously deliver them. And he's constantly reminding Israel, hey, 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 hold on here. I'm that guy. Remember, you had the whips and the chains. You had all that kind of stuff. And you, the bricks without straw, you know, the 400 plus years. Of, okay. 
I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. In fact, literally, I am Yahweh your God. I'm going to give you my name. I'm that guy. I'm your husband. I just brought you out. And now I'm giving you this promised land. So you got to pay attention here, Israel. I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. God was certainly faithful to Israel. He kept his covenant. Were they faithful to him? Well, God seems pretty upset, doesn't he? What seems particularly offensive to God is that the, the, the pagan altars have been left up. Even in places that Israel actually conquered. And these altars, you're going to see this later on in the, in the Old Testament, like the Kings and the Chronicles. It's a code word. It's like secret code in the Bible. No, not the Bible code. I used to be into the Bible code, those books. Oh, the Hebrew characters have a special end times code. No, no, no. There's a secret code in the Bible. It reads like this. Here's this king of Judah or of Israel, son of, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, they, and then they say this. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to his father, David. Or he did not. You see, if he was a good king, and there was only like five or six good kings, they were all in Judah, all in the south, none up north. Every single one of them, the key thing was they didn't take down these stinking altars, these competing places of worship. They're constantly a snare. Remember that when we get to Gideon. People love Gideon, and I don't know why they love Gideon. Oh, goodness, I don't know why, and I'm not going to be kind to Gideon. But I'm going to be faithful to what the text says. But Gideon's going to have an altar. And uh, yeah. Um, yeah, God, God's messenger indicts them. He doesn't really indict them on not really make on uh, a failure to drive them out. But so you entered into treaties with them. Seriously? If they had been faithful, the occupation of Canaan would have eventually taken place but now their disobedience has changed things. Now, from a sovereign God standpoint, God only has a plan A. We can't say, well, I didn't do my part, so now God's lost. You know, Eve, why'd you have to eat that apple? Come on, you ruined everything. Now look what God has to do. No, 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 no. God's not dependent upon us. He's not up, up there mar marching in the corridors of heaven and wiping his brow going, geez, what's Joel going to do? I mean, I, I, know, I know the perfect response, but I got to wait for him to do it. No, that makes God dependent upon me. You don't want that. But yeah, you know, God's kind of giving them a threat here as well. It's kind of like a veiled threat, but you're going to have to deal with these, these Canaanites now. They're here. And yeah, the whole rest of the book of Judges. And we're going to get there next week. We're going to describe this in this cycle. And what happens with, 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 when God raises up a judge what exact, and it's going to go through the entire book of Judges, this cycle. And we're going to get there next week. But it all comes down to the enemy is still there. And they are still active. And they are still working against God's people. So I want to close. Oh, yeah, God is faithful. Israel is not. God lays out the reality. And, you know, you got to give him credit. Israel is broken down by this. They responded to God's indictment by weeping. That is good. They responded by brokenness and by sacrifices and worship. Okay. You really can't worship God unless you're broken towards your sin. 
and that's just otherwise you're going to be cherishing your sin i mean it's like you your time before god is thanksgiving it's also while wow, your god died. it's kind of like peter when he's in front of jesus saying pete jesus you got to get away from me i'm a sinful man <laughs> you're too close to me jesus i i'm not worthy of being you know i'm a sinful guy what am i doing hanging out close to you you know there's something to be said for that and yet the veil has been torn God in the midst of, you know, though we were with sin, God became sin. So we've been reconciled. But do we cherish this sin? Are there things we're holding on to? Well, some blue things here. I'll scroll down. Oh, what might have been. What's that old line? Of all the sad words of tongue and pen, none sadder than these, what might have been. Ah, yes. Israel, what might have been. Yeah, you didn't handle your stuff. And now... Now we have to deal with, <laughs> we have to deal with like uh, the Old Testament books that we had, to, we studied this summer, the Jonah and the Nahum and the Habakkuk and uh, previously the Esther. It's like these enemies of God's people harming God's people. And, uh, but you know, we can't spend much time there. Disobedience breeds failure. Yeah. I don't know. This, this is a hard point. So many people, they've come to me like, you know, I just feel like God's distant. I just feel like I used to be closer with God, but now I just feel like God is so far away from me. And I don't, I don't ask this question to be mean. I don't ask it to be a jerk. I'm definitely not going to ask it to, you know, try to have something on them. But it's a key question. When God feels distant, a number one question I would want to ask, and ask this question in the midst of your depression, in the midst of your darkest valley, be asking this question. What sin am I cherishing? What sin is my house guest? What am I coexisting with that I can't be coexisting with? And I'm trying to point at the page here. What is it, what's in my house that should not be in my house. And that's a metaphor. But what is it? I mean, well, God feels distant, you know, so it must be something. Okay, well, let's start with that. And people are so tempted to look at other people. And they just want to focus on the people who have wronged them. They want to focus on the people who have hurt them. They want to focus on their abusers. They want to focus on the people who have done things to them. And yes, there's a focus to be made upon people who have wronged you. But it needs to stop. Because nothing's ever going to change in your life if you're focused on other people. You got to take that focus upon yourself. We're told to deny ourselves, but there's a certain time we got to focus on ourselves. Am I being obedient? Am I answering the call? Am I doing what I should be doing? And there's something in my house. I need to look at that. I need to pay attention to that. And my disobedience, and I, so I shouldn't be shocked if I'm distant from God. I shouldn't be shocked if things aren't working out the way I want them to work out. I'm not saying there's a one-for-one -one correlation there. That's not fair, and, that, and that's, that plays with God's sovereignty. I'm not comfortable with that. But it still needs to be said. If there are things in your life that shouldn't be in your life, if there are things that you are cherishing or you are willing to sin to keep, those are idols. We can't do that. Mick texts in, faith requires us to have courage. Courage of convictions, courage to trust God. Courage is not having fear, but taking heart and trusting God, especially in the face of opposition. 
Yeah, and that's the next point here. Showing obedience, especially among difficult circumstances. The Canaanites were determined to live in the land. Okay? Now apply that metaphor to that stubborn part of your life. What is determined to stay there? What refuses to change? What refuses is just opposing you all the way? Oh, if you only knew my marriage. Oh, if you only knew my relationship with my kids. Oh, if you only knew my boss. Oh, if you only knew the person I'm dating or the person I wish I was dating. Oh, this person that is, is, is an enemy to me. Oh, if you only knew the struggle that I have where I, 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 I wish um, this wasn't the way it was, but it is. You know, I, I run support groups for the bridge and, and I deal with people who are, are wanting things they don't have. Sometimes it's a job. Sometimes they wish they weren't grieving of the loss of loved ones. Some people are grieving um, the fact that they're, they're struggling to have children. Some people are, are grieving the fact that their marriage is shot. And others are grieving the fact that their adult child that used to be a person of faith, now they're kind of walking away and they're like a prodigal. Those are my support groups that I run, or our support groups to the bridge. And can we obey even if circumstances are hard? You know, we would have a lot more respect for Judah and for, well, any of these guys. Well, Simeon's off the hook here, and Caleb, of course, is off the hook, but Benjamin, Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and certainly Dan, if they would have said, you know what, this is hard, but God promised us this, and we're going to die trying. Certainly God's not going to have us all die, but we're going to go. We'd have respect for that. We'd say, well, okay, at least they trusted God. It's a, kind of, it's a kind of thing that we learn in the book of Hebrews about Abraham. When he's taking Isaac up the mountain, you know, he's going to kill him because God told him he had to sacrifice him. And the book of Hebrews tells us, well, he realized that God could raise the dead. So if God's going to call me to sacrifice my one and only son, that God's going to handle his business. See, we would respect the heck out of that with these tribes. But they don't. And they're willing to compromise because it was hard. And because their circumstances were really hard. And see, we do that in our life. We go, well, I'm holding tough cards. Or we, we, we kind of make it like this. I can't say anything because I haven't walked in her shoes. There's something to be said about experiencing things. But experience, our stories, they never define the truth. They illustrate the truth, but they never define it. And that kind of gets into relativism. It's like, well, you know, my story is, we all have different stories and we all, you know, your truth is different than my truth. Hogwash. See, that, 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 that's the thing I want you to take on from this. I want you to think about this phrase right here. By what standard? Hold on to that. Well, this person, you know, uh, there's no way you're a bad Christian or you, you're a really bad person or by what standard? That's a presupposition. Because as a Christian, we have one standard, and that's God's word. That's it. By what standard are you making your claims? By what standard was the conquest of Canaan a failure? Well, Judges chapter 2, 1 to 5. You have disobeyed me. God sets the standard. So there's something to say about showing obedience, especially among difficult circumstances. Obedience when it's easy? Oh, please, anybody can do that. But that's like the last part of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree withers and there's no fruit on the vine and the cows are not in the pens, though my entire economy is a bunch of garbage and a shot, yet I will still praise him. See, that's when faith has teeth. 
when it's hard, when life doesn't make sense, when everything in your life seems to work out wrong. You're like, darn it, again? I'm still dealing with this still? And you know what your situation is. You know what you are battling against. You know the things that you are struggling with. Can you show faith in the midst of, the, of that danger, in the midst of that difficulty? You know, the slippery slope of moral decay, we talked about this. It's just a slippery slope. They've started with their trust issues. They begin to coexist, and they, have, and they all of a sudden take them in their house, live in the same land, and now they're prisoners. And God's like, seriously? You think that's going to fly with me, Israel? I'm not pleased, Israel. It's like back in the day when mommy used to say, wait till your father comes home. She's not expecting God, daddy to come home happy at that point. There's going to be a moment there where you have to fess up and daddy's going to go, well, all right, we're going to deal with this. You know, my kids, my kids are, they fear their mother. Oh Lord, they fear their mother. And you know, it's, it's a, and mommy is, is she, you know, right now with our weird kind of work situation, we just kind of, you know, trade places and, and eventually mommy's out doing visits or whatnot. And, and my son will come up to me and go, don't tell mom. Don't tell mom I did this. Like, what am I, chopped liver? Well, sometimes. It's like, you know, it's like they fear the disapproval of mom. It's just the way it is. I, it's a, but yeah. Do we even care what God has to say? Do we even care? You know, God, I've got a hard life. I mean, come on. God, seriously, all we have to deal with right now, isn't it enough that I'm going to church? Isn't it enough, God, that I'm attending a Wednesday night class? I mean, God, seriously, I have literally a million other things I could be doing. I could, you know, be sitting there on the couch with my phone and with a cup of coffee and just doing my thing, but I'm here. I mean, seriously, God, are you really going to be rough on me? Israel was holding tough cards. The other guys had chariots. They didn't have chariots. Maybe they said, you know, we could beat the up, we could beat the hills, we can't beat the plains. Maybe God will be okay with that. We did our part. You know what? They have chariots. Later on, David's gonna face the biggest dude in the Bible. They have a Goliath, God. What are we supposed to do with that? So yeah, Mick texted in. To their credit, they did display remorse. That's right. And Bokeem has an idea of weeping or extreme sadness. Yeah, that's good. I mean, if God, if God calls you on your sin, the best response is to weep. Okay, blessed are those who mourn. That's, uh, that's not people who are just crying. You're mourning your sinfulness. There's a context to your mourning. The final thing here, my wife has this frog big stuffed animal frog. I should have brought it with me. And maybe it's in here somewhere. This is the toy room. I'm just thinking about it. I got an elephant on the wall behind me, but the, this frog is not here. Okay. I asked her, what's the deal with this frog? And she says, it's an acronym. F-R-O-G. I'm like, it's not an F and R. It's a, it's a frog. It's a stuffed frog. Have a frog in your house. Get on Amazon, buy you a cheap little frog thing. You don't need to buy a real frog, my goodness. You need to have a frog. And those of you who've heard this before, you can smile along with me. That frog, put it somewhere in your house, a little figurine or whatever. It stands for fully, will lie, 
on God, F-R-O-G. That's it. You need to remember in the situation you're going through, rely on God. Those are the 12 tribes. Not all 12 are listed. Not all 12 are going to get land. Levi is not going to get land. They're going to get cities, like, you know, dotted through everywhere. Okay, they just got, they, they don't get land. They get cities because their whole life, they don't get land because their land is God. Their inheritance is not land. Their inheritance is God. It's like, that's it. It's like, so they're not going to have land to hold on to. They get cities and they can provide for their families and et cetera. But their, their inheritance is God. Well, that's our inheritance too. The, the Old Testament calls that the portion. But you're my portion, Lord. Yeah. Judges is great stuff. It gets only better from here. We had to have this introduction. Next week's going to be a second introduction. It has a weird like double introduction. Okay, but we had to see their failure because it's going to paint the picture for the rest of the book. Well, why are these people here in God's promised land? This is why. Because the rest of the book, every single time, Israel is going to be smacked around and God's going to show pity on them, show mercy to them. He's going to raise up a judge. And that's why the book's called the book of Judges. And some of these judges are going to be faithful. And the other judges are not going to be faithful. And the worst judge, spoiler alert, Samson. There you go. We'll find out more about him much later. Anyway, God bless you. See you next week.